Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. My sermon today will be focusing on the message to the Laodicean church. And the church of uh, Laodicea was located in a community that was attractive and progressive and prosperous. The city was the hub of education and commerce and administration in its territory. And the citizens there, because of these institutions and industries, they were very prosperous and very comfortable. Now, I I go back to quickly to the book of Colossians where Paul wrote to the church there, but it may have skipped your notice when he writes to the Colossians twice he mentions the church of Laodicea. And in both instances, there is no indication at all that there is any problem in the church of Laodicea. They appear to be doing pretty good. As a matter of fact, just to to use one example, he wrote to the Colossians in the second chapter, and speaking to the church, he said, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. We don't see anything in Paul's letter that indicates the church at Laodicea was a problem church. Even the next reference he makes to them in Colossians is uh, very encouraging. Just good people that he just wants to make sure that they're they're not deceived. The church of Laodicea would become uh, one of the seven major hubs of Christianity in Asia that that we see the letters are addressed to them in the book of Revelation as dictated by Christ. And out of these seven churches that Christ dictates this message to, there's only two churches that received full commendation without condemnation. It would be the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. And it's interesting to note that of all seven churches that were addressed, and of the two that received strumendation for the good things they were doing and no condemnation for anything that was wrong in the church, that these two, these two stellar churches, the ones that all should aspire to, Smyrna was a very poor church. And Philadelphia 
was a very small church. So the only two churches that Jesus did not address any problem they had were by our evaluation and standards today, failures. We see that God's evaluation is quite different from ours, don't we? And both of these churches just happened to be churches that were under severe persecution from Jews at the time. And Jesus said, you have no problems. And these are two churches that Jesus warned them of the future persecution that was coming to them. Two churches, no problems, no money, few people, and lots of persecution. But Christ says, you're doing a good job. The rest of the churches had issues, and you've probably read the book of Revelation, many of you, most of you, and you can see that these are letters where he's telling them, get your act together. You've got problems. I'm not happy with this. And it ranged from doctrinal problems that had crept into the church, moral corruption that had crept into the church, and spiritual lethargy. And out of all seven churches and out of the five churches that had problems, the Laodicean church was on the bottom rung. This was the worst. Now, some of you may have heard some prophecy teaching trying to align the seven churches in Revelation with seven church ages. And it's very popular that some say we are in that Laodicean age. And there simply is no basis for making those seven churches represent seven ages of the church that we've been through. There, there simply is none. I, I know it sounds fun, but it's the, no, no validity to it whatsoever. But what I am going to do is I'm going to look at the problems that the church of Laodicea had, and I'm going to see some things that are happening today in the church that should be of concern to us if it was of concern to Jesus, if this was what happened to the church of Laodicea. Ranked lowest of all, we did not have any indication of problems in the church of Laodicea when Paul wrote them less than 35 years later, one generation. They are a mess. That's how quickly a church can go down. Just couldn't say anything good about them. They had lost it. Yet in their pitiful condition, here's the things that were not wrong with the church. Unlike some of the other churches that Jesus addressed, the church of Laodicea was not tolerating pagan idolatry. Not that we have any indication. Some of the other churches were. Laodicea wasn't. We don't have any evidence in the church of gross moral failure. We do in other churches. We don't have any evidence of false doctrine in the church. At outward glance, Laodicea seemed like a decent place, one that probably people would walk in and say, I would like to be a part of this church. No funny stuff going on. No weird doctrines. 
No web of immorality gripping the people. Just a church. And a nice church. And nice people. So how could a church like this, in a beautiful community, prosperous church, prosperous people, had enough money to fund anything they wanted to do, receive the lowest condemnation of all the churches, the worst. There were things going on in the Laodicean church that escaped the physical eye. The physical senses. And Jesus saw it. Others didn't see it. But Jesus saw it. Now, that makes me want to get his report at all times. We have our evaluations. I want to know what Christ thinks of our church. Maybe I don't. But I do. That's the only report that really matters, doesn't it? So I'm going to draw that into question today. Lord, what do you think about Westside? And I think we need to think on that far beyond my sermon today. Let that be a question you ponder. Lord, what do you think of our church? I'm going to key on the concept of the delusions that this church was under and ask ourselves, are we under any of these delusions today the church at large we can ask we can broaden this out to the 21st century church we can narrow it down to just the 21st century of the united states because the church in different parts of the world is somewhat better in some cases somewhat worse in some cases or we can zero right in on our congregation there's a number of different ways we can look at this and ask these probing questions in the 15th verse, Jesus said, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Oh, those are shocking words to a church. That as they look around them, they don't see any problems. Lord, we're not immoral. You know, it's a nice, healthy church. We're doing fine. And God's assessment, God's analysis, God's final judgment is, you make me sick. I cannot tolerate the condition you're in. Lukewarmness. Now, we, we can talk about what does lukewarmness mean and debate will go on about that. We often think of the term lukewarm as applying to one's spiritual condition. That's the most common way we think of that. So if we talk to another individual or talk about an individual and we make some reference, they're, they're just really lukewarm. Or you might assess yourself, I just feel lukewarm right now. You're, you're talking about a spiritual condition. If we... In, on a personal level, talk about, I'm really on fire for the Lord. I'm red hot for the Lord. That's a spiritual condition. They've really grown cold. That's a spiritual condition. That's the most common way we think of those terms of being hot and cold and lukewarm. There's, there's something odd 
about this when Jesus says to them, I would rather you be hot, which is on fire, or cold, which is a bad spiritual condition. How is it Jesus could say, I'd rather you be cold than to be lukewarm? And if this is talking about a spiritual condition, then Jesus would be indicating it would be better for you to be stone cold spiritually. And I'm, I struggle with how to explain that could be better than being lukewarm. Except that God says, I hate lukewarmness worse than I hate coldness. And perhaps if we tried to unravel that, we could think at, at least people who are cold, maybe they know they're cold. People who are lukewarm appear to be oblivious. And maybe that would be one reason why God would say. Maybe one reason why God would say I'd rather be cold than to be lukewarm would be because cold people are honest. Now, it has been said, and I don't know that I fully adhere to it and agree with it, but uh, somebody said I'd rather have an honest atheist than a devious Christian. But if you're dealing with somebody who's not honest in their self-assessment, How do you deal with those people? They're blinded. They're self-deceived. That would all be considering the possibility that is this really dealing with uh, the spiritual condition of being hot, lukewarm, or cold. The other possibility is that it has to do with fence straddling. And that is, there's a sense in which hot, cold, lukewarm metaphor may be referring to being non-committal. And that is, uh, if you're hot or if you're cold, you're committed. But if you're lukewarm, you're not committed. There's another possibility in this metaphor. There's an alarming trend today in the church. The American church, as I, if I might be more accurate, that we are, we are yielding to and succumbing to the temptation to be non-offensive. Now, offending people should never be our goal, okay? We're agreeing with that. I never get up on Sunday. And while I'm getting dressed, I just can't wait to get to church and offend somebody. I know you think I do that sometimes. That's not my goal. I don't want to offend anybody. But do you realize that whenever you have to issues, you inevitably will offend somebody? You all have been in that position at one time or another. may have been on a personal family level. may have been in a business arrangement uh, uh, where you have to address an employee or or a fellow employee. There's a lot of different situations we can find ourselves in where you realize something's wrong and somebody has to say something. And if you say something, you already are dreaming how badly this is going to go when you say this. So we realize how difficult that is. That's the difficulty. Is I I come with truth that runs cross-grain to the way this world thinks. I come with truth that that is in stark contrast to the brainwashing that has been going on for the past many years, accelerating in this day and age. Young people that are being raised on lies. 
and to confront them with the truth angers them. We've had to deal with issues like this just because we, our youth program, our children's program is more evangelistic than it is discipleship. Though we understand the value of discipleship, you've got to get people to even acknowledge there is a God before you can disciple them for what God wants in their life. So we're reaching out to people who have no concept about about Christianity, about what God wants in their life. We're trying to evangelize. We're trying to open their eyes to the fact that this is truth. Then we can begin to disciple. And in with those dynamics in our youth group and our children's group, then oftentimes we are speaking truths that they've never heard before, and sometimes they bristle. I know that uh, I had to confront an issue uh, in our youth group, some young lady there had become horribly confused in her sexual identity. And what we do in, in our ministry to these youth is we tell them that no matter what you may believe about this, that this is the way you need to conduct yourself while you're here on campus. And this is, you need to understand what we stand for and and honor that. Then whatever you do off campus is beyond the scope of our jurisdiction. But right here, right here, you understand the rules. That means if if you've got a couple of young boys that decide they want to be boyfriends, they can't go around hugging and kissing here on campus because we have standards that we believe in, that they have to honor two girls, same, same problem. And as I was addressing an issue like this, the girl became irate, challenged me. You can't tell me what I can't. Well, on this campus, we can. Off campus, I can't tell you what you can and cannot do. Right here we can. Didn't stop there. Uh, She got on the phone and called her aunt. And her aunt wanted to talk to me. Boy, did she give me a tongue lashing. Completely confused. To, to, To try and tell these things to you people, we are dealing with things in ministry today we didn't have to deal with 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And we are facing these things constantly. And I I think sometimes for the laity, you're not aware of what we are having to deal with. And this lady telling me, you have no right to. Wait a minute. We have a right. This is our church. But there is no truth to what you say. Oh, there is truth. Where in the Bible does it say it? Well, I tell her, she says, well, that's not true because my priest tells me it's not true. You see how frustrating it is whenever you try to tell truth. You try to get people to quit living by the deceptions that are being fed them today. They're they're taking truth that has been truth since there was truth and changing it to accommodate their own preferences and their own lifestyle. These are timeless truths. 
Anytime you address somebody with truth that doesn't want to accept truth, you've got a battle on your hands. Part of the problem we have with this Laodicean delusion is the churches that don't want to fight those battles. So the watering down truth, they are avoiding truth. And so it becomes a very watery, thin message. What can you preach without offending somebody? There's not a whole lot left other than God wants you to be happy. God bless you. He just wants to love you. God bless you. And while those are not inappropriate, unbiblical messages, it's not the whole truth. Yes, God wants you to be happy, but he doesn't want you to be happy by making your own rules and choosing to live any way you want to live. He wants you to be happy because he knows where happiness lies. It lies within the rules uh, that he has set for us as people, as human beings, to regulate our conduct that keeps us from having the kind of heartache that we inevitably get into when we make up our own rules. That's where God wants us to be. That's where happiness is truly found. For, for him just to say, God wants you to just to live a life, a carefree life, a free-for-all life, and that's where happiness is found, is a lie. It's not there. It'll never be there. And we're not... S- People running around trying to take everybody's joy away from them. We're trying to rescue them from certain heartache by saying these truths of God work. This is where true happiness is really found. I'm happy and well-adjusted because I was raised with an understanding there is a God who cares very much about me, who wants the very best for me, who knows that what I want for me is very seldom the very best for me. This experiment is so easy to, to, uh, uh, to prove. You take your child and just spend one week saying, I'm going to give the child anything the child wants. And you'll be shocked at what that child will do to themselves, nutritionally, placing themselves in danger. Uh, just getting into trouble. You may not have a child at the end of the week. They might think it's fun to play in the street. And the reason that you set boundaries is because you realize there's danger outside of where you want them to be. This is where it's safe. This is where it's happy. Your, Your child can rebel against you and say, all you want to do is take away my fun. All I want to do is keep you safe. All I want to do is give you a happy, functional life. I want you to have everything that, is, is it, that you were intended to have and not steal any of those things away by your bad choices and your bad conduct. Now, just blow that up to you and God, me and God. All he wants is for us to be safe and happy within that realm where happiness can truly be found. We don't want to be like that spoiled child that says, I want to eat what I want to eat. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be free of any encumbrances and any laws and any prohibitions that just let me go and let me be happy. There is no happiness at the end of that road. We challenge that with truth. Well, maybe the church of Laodicea was a fence-straddling church. Maybe they found it difficult to preach the truth because something was going on in this church. That Jesus said, you're lukewarm. You're not taking a position. You're not addressing the issues in your community. You have been put here to be salt 
which is an influence and light against darkness. But the church that chooses not to be salt because salt sometimes hurts wounds. Not to be light because people who love darkness don't like light. It's offensive. And so churches begin to water down their, their message. They, they, they want numbers. They want people. They don't want to make anybody unhappy. As a pastor, I had to get over having to win the majority of people's approval a long time ago. And I'm sorry when people get upset that they don't like what I have said. If I'm wrong, I owe an apology. If I preach the truth, there's nothing I can do. What can you do about it? All you can do is just, like Jesus, just kind of sadly shake your head and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would have none of it. You wouldn't have me. You know, this, this city that has stoned the prophets that have been sent unto you, I wanted to do something. I wanted to change you. I wanted to bring you to me like a mother hen gathers her chicks. You just wouldn't have me. Now your house is left desolate unto you. What a haunting message. Truth is being squeezed out for the sake of keeping peace. And I'm not sure there's anything more offensive to God if I'm reading this letter to the Ephesians and understanding it. Is there anything more offensive to God than a lazy, bloated, uncommitted, waffling, self-righteous, complacent church I'll spew you out of my mouth the second delusion that happened to the Laodicean church is Jesus accuses them and said you say I'm rich I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing I think he probably said this the, to the church maybe the church adopted an atmosphere and an attitude within that congregation we're just a wealthy church But it also goes to the people, individuals of the church who had an attitude because their attitude made up the attitude of the church. What nauseates God any worse than a church that's smug and self-sufficient? We don't try to reach a certain clientele here. Whoever walks in here, I don't care what social status you have. It matters not if you have a lot of money or no money. The message is still the same, that we're all sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. And we all pray at the same altar. Rich and poor alike. And Jesus said, you don't get it. What I'm seeing through the eyes of Jesus, what I'm seeing is in reality, you don't realize it. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Everything opposite of what they thought they were. There's the delusion. The delusion of being a wealthy, prosperous church. And Jesus said, you are far from prosperous. 
You are so self-deluded. You are poor. You are poorer than poor. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and put salve on your eyes so you can see. They just couldn't see it. And what Jesus was looking at was pathetic. And I said it not only applies to a church, it applies to people who think, I've got it all together, I don't need anything. God sees you and you need so much. He sees your need. He sees your desperation. You don't see your desperation. That's what I try to do in my sermons is get our eyes opened to our desperation. I know I preach to a lot of people who think I've got everything going for me. My career's going in the right direction. I've got a happy family. I've got money in the bank. Everything I'm hitting on all eight cylinders. Why do I need church? Why do I need God? Because if you do not have God, the very things that you have in the material sense are the things that you lack in the spiritual sense. That's what Jesus' message to the Laodicean church was. You think you have money? You are spiritually broke. Let me explain this. Laodicea was a banking, a commerce center. And because they bragged and boasted about how self-sufficient they were because they had money, Jesus used that as an illustration to say in the spiritual, that's exactly what you're lacking is spiritual riches. You have physical riches, you lack spiritual riches, therefore, truly, you are poor. You're not rich. You just think you're rich. It's an illusion. You are living this deluded life. You think money really makes you rich. Money doesn't make you rich. It actually, as far as God is concerned, is meaningless. Spiritually, you don't have two pennies to rub together. He said, I counsel you to buy gold from me. My gold, the spiritual gold, is worth far more than any amount of a physical, earthly money you could possibly have. He said, you need white clothes to wear. Now, Laodicea had a great textile industry going on there. And one of the things they were really proud of is is they had these Phrygian sheep that had black wool, were able to make from this a product called glossy black wool. And it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. So they were very proud of it. And once again, Jesus keys in on their their main product that they're so proud of. We are clothed in the finest of this glossy black wool. And Jesus Jesus said, it just so happens that you are naked spiritually. The thing you have in the spiritual is what you, in the physical is what you are lacking in the spiritual. So he says to them, that's the reason he says, you know what? You'd be a whole lot better off instead of relying on the beauty and being proud of your Phrygian black glossy wool to buy, buy white garments for me to cover your nakedness. Because spiritually you're lacking. Then the ISAF. They were also a major medical hub 
They had schools there teaching uh, medicine, producing some of the cutting-edge drugs of those day and age. And they had come up with something that was uh, an eye salve that they had created from the industries in their town. And it was, they were exporting eye salve everywhere. And, of course, blindness was a, a, an issue that, that they, they dealt commonly with in those days, that people would do anything to be able to be cured of blindness. Their eye salve didn't cure blindness, but uh, neither does your miracle diet pill drop weight off you overnight. we still got the same problem today. People buy things, they think it's going to perform miracles on their body, it just doesn't work. Well, they, they knew, the industry knew that secret years ago. Buy our eye salve. It's the best eye salve in the world. So people were ordering eye salve from Laodicea. And, the, and Jesus said, you know, it, it just so happens you that think you've got the eye salve that improves your eyesight, spiritually, you're blind. Everything they had in the physical corresponded to that thing which in the spiritual they were destitute of. I'm rich, I don't need anything. You know, the spiritual prosperity causes delusion. It causes uh, blindness. They thought material prosperity was evidence of God's blessings on them. They came to believe material prosperity was the answer to everything. And it was the answer to nothing. This rebuke from Christ is rich in this irony. The spiritual things you need, my friend, you cannot get from your paycheck. You can't get it from popularity. You can't get it from material success. These are spiritual things the carnal person will never own. And the physical things people put their trust in have the tendency to blind them to their true needs. As though all they have to do is spend a little more money and they'll solve every problem that they have. The third delusion of the Laodicean church was the delusion of Christless Christianity. And he said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with that person and they with me. Now, here's, here's the problem. The door is shut. And Christ is outside. How did Christ get outside? How did he get locked out? This is a church. He's not supposed to be locked out of his church. He owns it. Except they were no longer really a church in the sense of the church is the body of Christ. They'd become something else. Therefore, he was excluded. It was a Christless church, a Christless Christianity. And the pitiful picture we get here is a church that used to be a church that was commended by Paul, now has Jesus outside, and he's standing outside. Hey, let me in. Let me in. I used to be in there. You booted me out. I went back, and he's pleading to come back in and saying, if anyone, will open up and let me come in. We'll have fellowship. He just wants to have fellowship. Somehow, somewhere along the way, Jesus got ousted. Jesus gets left out. 
when we want the benefits of salvation, but we don't want the responsibilities of salvation or holy living. Jesus gets left out when we want to use his name for branding purposes. But we don't want to seek his counsel or his guidance. We want to march under the band of Christianity, but we don't want to live like Christ, nor heed his words. Jesus gets left out when we become self-sufficient. He gets left out when we put on the appearance of being a church, but we don't hold biblical values. And there's a lot of those churches popping up these days. They call themselves a church, they sing worship songs, they, they pray, they do everything, but they don't have biblical values. The Bible's being dismissed as a book of antiquity that is no longer valid for us today. So they get together and they have church. Atheists now have church, but they don't have biblical values. It's not the body of Christ. Jesus is standing outside and said, if you let me in, I'll have fellowship. But the problem is they don't want to let him in. If they let him in, he might kick over a few tables of money changers. If they let him in, he might drive out those who have taken over his father's house of prayer and made it a den of thieves. They don't want him in. It's perilous to what they've got going on inside. So I've got to ask the message. I've got to ask the question at at the conclusion. How do we measure up? There are many churches that have succumbed to the, the same kind of Laodicean delusions that this church yielded to. My prayer is for a wake-up call for the church. Wake up. Something's happening. We, we, can't, we can't slip into this, this comatose state. So let me go down the list. He said, uh, you got the delusion of being rich. I'm going to evaluate our church. And it doesn't take me but about two seconds to say, we're not guilty of that. We passed the test with flying colors. We're not a rich church. If you can't think of anything else to praise God for, praise him today, we're not a rich church. And it seems silly, doesn't it? Because all of us, we would like to think if we just had enough money, Lord. If we just wasn't struggling to pay bills. If we wasn't struggling to pay staff. If we just had enough. How nice it would be, God, if we, just, if we were just rich enough to do this. We don't have it. So I think, I think we pass the test with flying colors on number one. We don't have a problem with being self-sufficient. We are seeking God's help day after day here at Westside. God, help us. We need your help. We cannot do this without you. We have been forced into the water where our feet cannot touch bottom, and we're crying out, God, we need you. Don't desert us now. I don't like being there, but God wants me there. And I understand the dangers of being to the point where we're no longer dependent on God. Isn't it an odd thing, people, even on a personal level, how spiritual we are and how much we pray when we're in desperate straits? But once we get through it, it's like we set God to the side. I got it now, God. I can take it from here. 
And that's where we go through this vicious cycle of God bringing us down to the level where we need Him, we cry out to Him, we pray desperately for Him till He gets us out, then we don't need Him. Then He brings us back down where we need Him. Guess where God wants us to be? He wants us to be in a place where we recognize our need for Him every day. Now, we would be smart if we got to the point where we had enough money to do things and we were still desperately praying out to God, saying, God, this money means nothing. It could be all be gone tomorrow. Take not your Holy Spirit from us. We dare not rest on our bank account. We dare not rest on our numbers. Now, that would be the smart thing to do. We just aren't smart. The next delusion is the, 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 the delusion of Christless Christianity. So I check my church. I think we passed that test. Christ is the center of Westside Assembly of God. He is what we are all about. We exalt Him. We honor Him. We preach Christ crucified, risen and coming again. I do everything in my power to preach and teach how we should strive to be like Christ. So check that one off. We're okay. Now, lukewarmness. Hold on. I think we need to be on guard. We might pass the prosperity test. We're not deluded by our riches. We have none with which to be deluded. We might pass the test of Christless Christianity because Christ is the center of everything we do, we say. It's our whole purpose of existence. But when we come to lukewarmness, we cannot let complacency and lethargy set in to our church. And that concerns me. So I cry, Lord, help us that our church never becomes a boring ritual. And it's so easy to become a boring ritual. It's so, peop- it's so easy for people to get to, to get to the point where they attend church based on whether they feel like it or not. And if they're not particularly motivated, they don't feel like to attend. I'm not going to go. I just don't feel like it. The preacher's boring anyway. I don't like the songs. We get into a complacency. We get to where we, we can wake up and think, same old church. Same old thing every Sunday. I think I'm going to go to another church, and I'm going to see if I can find something exciting going on. You know what that is? That's lethargy. That's complacency. That's looking for somebody to wind your gears for you. Instead of realizing that we're coming here to minister worship to the Lord. And I'm praying, Lord, help us out during our worship service. That we we don't just endure and check out during worship. The Lord, we, we don't hit that little button in the back of our head during the sermons that says, wake me up when he's done. Help us never to lose our passion as a church for souls because that's why we're here. People are dying and going to hell every day. And do, does it matter? Have you lost any sleep over that? Do you care? We can't lose our passion for lost souls. Lord, my prayer is help us never to simply go through the motions and call it good for a Sunday. Help us not to lose our vision. It's not enough, people, just to have a fireplace. You've got to have a fire in it. 
We might be content we've got a fireplace and we don't owe anything for it. But where's the fire? And I wonder if we're complacent about that. Do we really care about having the presence of God? So it's not just a Sunday, but it's an encounter with God when we come in here. Do we care about that? I've got the fireplace. I want people who are fire starters. I need people who are fire tenders. And if we get a little wildfire, don't worry about it. I can snap out wildfire. I just want some fire. Because God says, if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth, and I don't want to be in that position. You don't have to have a thousand people to be passionate about God. You can be passionate about God with five people, ten people, fifty people, a hundred people. You don't have to have a thousand to have people who are turned on for God and excited to be living for Him and have the vision burning in their heart. We can do that. Lord, give us the fire starters. Give us the fire tenders. I'm asking Him to set a few spiritual arsonists loose in our midst. Give us the fire of the Holy Spirit. Give us the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Send the fire like you did on the day of Pentecost. Ignite our hearts. Because I know we're not rich. We don't have to worry about that. I know we haven't booted Christ out. We don't have to worry about that. But I wonder if we have a passion for Christ that's burning in our hearts. Let's don't fall into the lukewarmness. That's the last stage. Worship team, would you come?